Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about ladies first, contributions that women have made to sports in the United States in recent years. This has been on my mind as a topic going all the way back to the women's NCAA basketball tournament in the spring. And I got sidetracked a little bit, in perhaps a good way, by a music focus on some protest music. But Inappropriate Conversations is back to sort of the normal uh, lineup, the normal approach to shows with this one, including an introductory moment. I want to start with a callback to something that happened a couple of years ago and revisit it. And I promise that even though it may seem to be indirectly dealing with women and women in sport, I will tie it all together. See, we're only just a couple years now past the Obergfell versus Hodges U.S. Supreme Court ruling that will be perhaps forever known under uh, identifiers like uh, legalizing gay marriage or things along those lines. And at the time that that happened, I made a reference to an article from that I first encountered from Freakonomics that I had mentioned before, perhaps even quoted a little bit here on Inappropriate Conversations. I shared it more widely on other forms of my social media, personal pages, for example, to try to help friends understand, uh, friends who were confused, who didn't agree with what the Supreme Court's decision was, understand some of the differences. And this is truly from an economic perspective, but since it deals with marriage directly and women's rights and women's role in the workplace, I thought I would bring it up again here. The article I'm referring to is written by Justin Wolfers, referring pretty liberally to Betsy Stevenson and Gary Becker and other authors along the way. It was published May 15, 2012, which gives you a sense of how long economists have been discussing this issue. And the link that I'm using is Freakonomics.com from that date, May 15, 2012, and a headline that says, How Economics Explains the Rising Support for Gay Marriage. I realize I'm looking backwards, and this article is going to make uh, an argument from the perspective of comprehending the rising support. Of course, we're well past that now. But I'm going to spend a lot of time on this particular Inappropriate Conversations show looking to the past, and in particular, to the year 2012 and beyond. So might as well start back there with late spring of that year, and an economic perspective about marriage, and I will bring that back again to the role of women in the workplace, equality for women, and how that's manifested itself in women in sport. But first, a more lengthy quote than I've shared in the past, because I feel like this article is still the answer to questions that a lot of maybe my more conservative friends and family members have not yet fully come to terms with. It's going to refer, of course, to the Obama administration and the decisions that were made back then, but bear with me. President Obama's personal evolution toward accepting same-sex marriage has certainly made plenty of headlines. But perhaps the bigger and untold story is the evolution of marriage itself and how the generational shift in how we experience marriage underpins rising support towards same-sex marriage. At least that's the idea that Betsy Stevenson and I, Justin Wolfers, the author of this article, explore in our latest column. Quoting that column, Wolfers says this, For our grandparents' generation, marriage was about separate roles, separate spheres, 
and specialization. Gary Becker, an economist at the University of Chicago, won the Nobel Prize partly for describing the family as an economic institution, a bit like a small firm that employs people with different skills to produce both income and a well-rounded household. In Becker's view, the joining of husband and wife yields a more productive firm because it allows one spouse to specialize in earning income from working in the market, while the other specializes in the domestic sphere. The division of labor allows for greater productivity, just as it does in the workplace. The different skills required for these separate roles provide an economic rationale for the advice your grandmother may have offered that opposites attract. It's that generation who prized traditional separate spheres marriages who find the idea of same-sex marriage to be foreign. And this type of marriage was not a particularly appealing institution for same-sex couples, whose relationships typically eschew this traditional division of labor. But heterosexual couples, in more recent generations, are also less likely to aspire to separate sphere marriages. Economists describe a second industrial revolution in which washing machines, dishwashers, and microwave ovens have reduced the value to the family firm of employing a domestic specialist. Cheap clothes can be imported from China rather than sewn at home. Healthy meals can be purchased from the freezer at Trader Joe's. What's more, legal and social changes have broken down many of the barriers keeping women out of the labor market. Explicit discrimination has declined. Women have gained more control over their fertility. All of these developments have increased the opportunity cost of having a spouse stay at home, because that spouse has greater value now in the marketplace. As a result, our grandparents' marriages, in which husband and wife have separate roles and spheres, are no longer so popular. Two-earner couples have become the norm, and families spend less time on housework. The point is, technological, economic, social, and legal changes have undermined the benefits of the traditional marriages of the 1950s. When the benefits of marriage declines, then you'd expect marriage itself to disappear. Instead, it has evolved to offer different benefits. Today, we search for a soulmate rather than a good homemaker or provider. We are more likely to regard marriage as a forum for shared experiences and passions. Viewed through an economic frame, modern partnerships are based upon consumption complementarities, the joy of sharing things and experiences, rather than the production-based gains that motivated traditional marriage. Consistent with this, co-parenting has replaced separate roles of nurturer and disciplinarian. We have called this new model of sharing lives hedonic marriage. These are marriages of equality in which the rule opposites attract no longer applies in the same way, because couples with more similar interests and values can derive greater benefits. So likes are, more, are now more likely to marry each other. All of this means that changes in heterosexual marriage have yielded an institution that is now more attractive to same-sex couples. In turn, we believe that this explains why the gay and lesbian community have become so active in advocating for access to marriage. Moreover, these same economic forces may also explain why it is that younger generations are so much more likely to support same-sex marriage. For heterosexuals who have embraced the modern notion of marriage, the idea of same-sex marriage seems natural. These couples aren't any different from them. They love and support each other, raise kids together, and are committed to each other. They share values, desires, and interests. Not allowing them to marry is as arbitrary as not allowing couples of different races, ethnicities, or religions to marry. 
looking ahead, we think these same factors will continue to reshape marriage. It is no coincidence that many of the opponents of same-sex marriage are also opponents of the ongoing shift to marriages of equality. Theirs is a futile battle. The reach of markets will keep expanding, allowing individuals and families to reap greater returns by selling their specialized skills and services outside the home. Technological change will further undermine the benefits of specialization within the family. Improvements in women's education will continue to raise the opportunity cost of staying at home. My prediction, Wolfer says, the reach of same-sex marriage will continue to grow, and in a decade or so, will be largely uncontroversial. This is from Freakonomics back in 2012. So how does this tie in to the question I want to talk about today in the sense of the role of women in sport, um, how it's evolved, how can we explain its evolution, and what benefits do we reap from it? Uh, ladies first when it comes to sport, in other words. And the one you know theme I'll drive home here is that from an economic perspective, and this is my point of view more than Wolfer's point of view, is even if you did try, even if there was some alternative universe where you could conceivably go back to a traditional form of marriage, whether because you stripped away the information age and automation and other technological developments that, as they cited in the article, have made uh, the, the process of managing a home uh, more automated, maybe not automatic, but more automated, or whether you just decided that despite the fact that it's not necessary, we're going to write some sort of theocratic legislation and force one member of the family to stay at home. I'm not sure that our economy would survive it. Beginning in the late 60s through the 70s, and certainly by the time the 80s hit, you began to see the two parents working situation be less a matter of choice and more a matter of necessity that we had created an economy we created, for want of a better word, a lifestyle that was simply not sustainable if the family that could be making almost twice as much money was instead making half. The other end of that, though, if you think about it from the perspective of gross domestic product and other um, economic health measures, if you remove the productivity from the business sphere, from the working marketplace of uh, 40, 50 percent of the people who are out there contributing to our economy, I'm not so sure that our economy could survive it. There are a couple of things that have gone on just in my lifetime that I think can explain why we're a little bit held hostage to our modern world, that these advances in technology, which have provided so many opportunities for women, have at the same time locked us into a situation where affording that requires more working capital inside the family, also requires more of us uh, as a country, that we might not be able to survive without those additional workers. We wouldn't be able to generate the same amount of economic productivity without those workers. That's one aspect. The other aspect is what Eisenhower warned about in the late 1950s, the military-industrial complex. We can speak all we want to about how nice it would be to not be the world's leading manufacturer of guns and rockets and, and weapons of all sorts of varieties, and whether it would be a really good idea if we stopped exporting the tools of war around the world. But I'm not sure our economy could survive that either if what we call the defense industry suddenly disappeared. Uh, how would our economy react and would we be able to recover? So it's enough to say that the uh, common denominator between this article explaining what was about to happen in the next five years from when it was written to gay marriage was as much about the role of men and women in our workplaces and inside the homes 
as it was about anybody who might be gay or lesbian. That also, I think, has something to do with the role of women in society in general. There was a point when it became unreasonable, perhaps even untenable, for us to have women contributing in greater and greater ways within the workplace and still have barriers that were standing in the way of those women when it comes to equal access to education, equal access to scholarships, and other things. And this cuts to the very heart and soul of the main topic I want to deal with today. What sort of changes have happened in our society that has led us to a point where I would argue that, at least on the world stage, if you eliminate some of the bias that's still represented in American professional sports, and it's a worldwide thing as well, but at least when it comes to the area of what we might call pure sport, whether that be uh, national events like the World Cup or uh, presumably amateur, or at least historically amateur competitions like the Olympics, women have truly emerged as among the greatest, most heralded athletes on the planet. And that is not a mistaken perception. Uh, I remember just a few years ago watching the Women's World Cup that was played you know, in Canada where the United States won that World Cup event and seeing the things that even if you just focused on just Carly Lloyd as a single individual player, the things that she was accomplishing, and you'd have to ask, well, for my generation, because I'm at least 20 years older than the women who play for the U.S. national team uh, in the game of soccer, for my generation, was that actually possible? And the argument might be that perhaps rising to that level of, of sporting excellence might not have been possible, that something would have arrested that point of development before it could reach kind of the the realized potential that we're seeing here. I think to explain this better, though, I want to dial us back again to the year 2012 and make an argument from the perspective of August of that year, Summer Olympic Games in Great Britain. This is an article from MotherJones.com under their politics heading from August 12th, 2012. It's co-authored by Tasneem Raja, Janae Lee, and Maya Dusenberry. The headline, U.S. Female Olympians Have Won More Medal Points Than All But Four Countries. This, a recap or a midpoint recap of the Summer Olympics that year in Great Britain. Here's the article. Title IX fans should be feeling pretty darn good. This year, for the first time, the U.S. team sent more women than men to the Games. 268 women and 261 men. And the ladies carried the Americans' team's medal tally. 30% of female American athletes had medaled by Friday. This is, again, an article written August 12th of that year. Compared to 15% of their male counterparts. In fact, if the women were their own country, they'd be fifth in the overall count of medals. They've got a chart where they show uh, both what if female Olympians were their own country and kind of how that stacks up. And also another chart, which I will share as a graphic at inappropriateconversations.org, that tracks the progress that women athletes have made from 1896 to 2008. Remember, at the time this article was written, the 2012 Olympic Games weren't quite over yet. We didn't need a full slate of results from the 2012 Olympic Games to show the numbers drastically. It's medals won by U.S. female Olympians before and after Title IX. And I'll talk more about Title IX here in just a moment. The Title IX passed in 1972. It's a fair question as to whether that was actually being properly and fully enforced until into the 1980s. 
And of course, in the year 1980, the United States boycotted the Moscow Olympics, meaning that at least from the Summer Olympics perspective, there were there were no medals for any American at that time. And I realize I'm focusing on this inappropriate conversation show from an American perspective. But trust me, my intent is not to make any comparison of America to other countries. This isn't a rah, 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 America great, America women great, other countries not as good. And I really am not even trying to engage in any sort of battle of the sexes here either. I just want to make a contrast, though, between women and their success in the last couple of Olympics versus the U.S. men pretty much towing the line and kind of doing what more or less what they've always done and how that difference ties in to the incentives related to allowing someone to be paid either in the form of academic scholarship or in other ways, uh, endorsements or what have you, to continue pursuing uh, athletic pursuits as an amateur intending to compete in the Olympics. This graph shows it quite clearly. In the 1984 Olympic Games, the medals won by U.S. female Olympians spikes up to well above 100, a little bit shy of 150. Important to note that the uh, Summer Olympics that year were in Los Angeles, so you've got a sort of a home field advantage, as it were. Dips back down under 100, but still well above 50. In fact, probably as high in 1988 as double most of the years before I was born. Pick any two random years before 1960, say, and you're going to have a hard time putting two Olympics together that tally as much as a quote-unquote down year in 1988. and 92, that number spiked up around to the 100 mark again. 2000, close to 150. 2008, above 150. Probably more like 175, looking at the chart. And it's not just the home team gals who are leveling the playing field. Women's participation in the Games has increased steadily since 1960, when women made up 11.4% of the total number of athletes. This year, this is 2012, 44% of Olympians are women. And for the first time ever, every country has at least one female athlete in their delegation. So, again, not just an American phenomenon. I feel like this is probably a good time to talk a little bit about Title IX, since Title IX is given some credit in this article, and a lot of credit in the one, the look back I want to do to 2016 as an explanation for why. And on one level, it's kind of obvious enough that I don't even feel like there's much of a need to dwell on it. But on another level, especially to a non-American audience, anybody who's not familiar with uh, college sports in America in particular, this might require a little bit of explanation. Quoting Wikipedia, Title IX is a portion of the United States Education Amendments of 1972. Co-authored and introduced by Senator Birch Bay, it was renamed the Patsy Mink Equal Opportunity and Education Act in 2002. After Patsy Mink, its, its House co-author and sponsor, it states in part that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or subject to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Essentially, what it said was that if there's going to be scholarships handed out to young high school graduates who are men playing sports in a college environment, then that university needs to provide similar scholarships for women playing sports at that same school. And uh, what this did, among other things, somewhat controversially, oddly controversially in my opinion, is it meant that if you wanted to maintain a large football program with 50 or so players on scholarship, 
that you needed to make sure you had a women's softball program and a soccer program. In many universities to this day, you'll find that there's a women's gymnastics team, but not a men's team. Or they maintain a softball program, but not baseball. A way of balancing out the number of available scholarship between men's sports and women's sports. The easiest one to manage there is basketball, of course, where you have a a very similar set of sporting rules, same number of players on the bench and on the court at any given time. But there were uh, situations where you had traditionally men's sports like wrestling, where there wasn't a solid or obvious female equivalent, where if you wanted to maintain a wrestling program, well, then you needed to find some compensatory sport that would have women players on scholarship and no men on scholarship. Controversial, I suppose, because it, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if there's people still smoldering a resentment today if they were, you know, actively committed to their university's wrestling program, the wrestling program disappeared. Because rather than making room for more scholarships and providing an additional sporting opportunity for women, some universities did the more draconian thing of simply eliminating certain men's sports altogether and the scholarships that went with them. Of course, one of the things that in American college athletics is not negotiable is the American version of football. My alma mater, for example, though, chose to say, we don't have currently a soccer program for either gender, but if we want to abide by the law here in Title IX, one of the things we could do is create a women's soccer program, not fund the corresponding men's soccer program, and simply have two versions of football available, meaning that the sport of soccer, football from the world's perspective, in American college athletics was perhaps disproportionately advantaged by the fact that universities who wanted to maintain a robust athletic department needed to add scholarships, needed to add a lot of scholarships in a single sport, and soccer provided perhaps as good an opportunity as any, soccer and softball being the two most obvious examples. So, Because of that, you saw a kind of persistent commitment to the sport of soccer that maybe didn't exist when I was a kid. Even a girl who was in school with me when I was a boy might have played very well and excelled at the sport of soccer, would have had all kinds of reasons by the time she moved through middle school to high school to abandon that pursuit. It wasn't going to be a lucrative way to get your college paid for by continuing to play a sport you're good at and a sport you love at the collegiate level. There wasn't at the time even really that much of a men's professional league. Certainly no real idea of a women's professional league. But just this one element alone, Title IX, using scholarships to pay for women who wanted to go to college, get an education, and continue to pursue and develop in sport at the same time. The benefits that have appeared on the soccer field for more than three decades now in you know, U.S. women's soccer performance. This is not the one in the most recent World Cup, the first World Cup that the U.S. women have won. But there was a gap in between. The difference is that in between the first World Cup and this one is that the women, the U.S. women's team has maintained a fairly stable level of excellence, and the world has gone through what I'm going to call two phases of elevating their game. Uh, one phase right there at the beginning of that initial resurgence of Women's World Cup, and the other here recently, the U.S. women winning the World Cup in Canada has been followed up by, for a while, a victory lap of sorts with friendlies against a variety of nations that the U.S. women were continuing to dominate and win handily, which you could already see the signs in that World Cup tournament that other nations were beginning to cover the gap 
and that has certainly been true in friendly competitions that have been played in the last 12 months, where the U.S. women's team's record of wins and losses is nowhere near as impressive as it was in the years leading up to the World Cup, and of course in that World Cup run. Now again, part of that is I think that the rest of the world is catching up, and it's a reflection of the influence that uh, American sport has had on the rest of the world. We've seen it in men's basketball as well. You put a dream team out there for two or three Olympic cycles, and pretty soon, well, one of two things happens. Either the international community gets together and decides that basketball is not a sport we want in the Olympics anymore. We've seen that, examples of that, like baseball. Or the other nations kind of begin to make meteoric improvements and step up their game. And we're seeing more players drafted in the NBA, not just international players participating and contributing, but players being drafted very highly from other nations' developmental programs. I think that's a result. If you set a high standard that others can aspire to, that aspiration is truly international. So in some ways, Title IX, its creation of the same incentives for women's athletes that men's athletes have always had, has had maybe a worldwide impact. Let's move forward four years, and instead of being caught right smack dab in the middle of the 2012 games, let's look at a recap of the Olympic Games from 2016. This one is an article from NPR. In a blog called The Torch, NPR's Olympic coverage, published August 21st, 2016, it is written by Greg Meyer with contributions from Katie Doggart, and it deals with a recap of the games that at that point had just ended. From the article, No one is flying home from Rio with more medals than the U.S. women. The full American squad, both men and women, won the most medals overall, 121, as has often been the case in the summer games. The first in London four years ago, and again in Rio, the U.S. women have captured most of those medals. The U.S. women took 61, the men had 55, and there were five in mixed events, including equestrian and mixed doubles tennis. How good were the American women? They won 27 of the 46 American golds. If the U.S. were divided into two countries, one male and the other female, those 27 golds for the women would tie them with Britain for the most of any country, put them one ahead of China and far ahead of the American men and everyone else. This trend became clear in London, where American women won 58 medals of all colors compared with 45 for the U.S. men, the first time the women outpaced their male counterparts. As we noted before the Rio Games in a previous blog, American women were not always such a powerhouse. At the 1972 Olympics in Munich, the American women won 23 medals compared with 71 for the U.S. men. The women didn't win a single medal in gymnastics and had no golds in track and field. But that same year, the U.S. Congress passed Title IX, barring discrimination in education programs that receive federal funding. This has helped revolutionize women's sports at both the high school and college levels. American women are now dominant in many sports, including gymnastics, swimming, basketball, rowing, water polo, and soccer. Americans took gold in all those sports except soccer, where they were upset by Sweden. The U.S. had the largest overall team in Rio, with 554 members, and the women, 291, outnumbered the men, 263, for the second straight Olympiad. Now, there are a range of factors, this article notes. Other factors have helped American women at the Olympics over the past few decades. Additional sports for women are added with regularity, including rugby in Rio. Top U.S. gymnasts emerged from the countless private gyms around the country, not through the schools. 
And the former juggernauts from Eastern Europe, like the Soviet Union and East Germany, either don't exist or aren't what they used to be during their communist eras. Still, American athletes in Rio turned in extraordinary performances by any measure. Consider, Simone Biles won four gold medals and a bronze, making her the most decorated U.S. gymnast in a single Olympics. Sprinter Allison Felix won two golds in relays and a silver in the 400 meters. That boasted her to six career goals, the most in track by any woman from any country, and nine medals overall for her four Olympics. Katie Ledecky held in four golds and a silver as she smashed the world record in the 400-meter and the 800-meter freestyles along the way. At just 19, she could be even better in Tokyo in 2020. Now, the authors of this article made a few other notes about other countries. This isn't just an American phenomenon. But the point that I wanted to make is that a seemingly controversial idea about what might happen in athletics if we treated men and women equally, what might happen in academics if we treated men and women equally, a notion that was so controversial in 1972 that when the movie The American President was made two decades later, it was still being discussed as an active plot point. The suggestion, I think an accurate suggestion, is that whether members of Congress or lobbyists might take the opportunity to uh, twist the arm of a brand new president and see what he could do to roll back that Title IX nonsense. Well, that Title IX nonsense has a lot to do with American success on two fronts. First, the Olympics are a pretty good indicator of amateur sports success. Coming along every four years, it's not an annual event, so there may be other indicators along the way between these four years. I focused on the summer games. It's where my interest truly lies. And it is fair to note that um, you would expect perhaps to see in colder climate countries that maybe winter sports would be more success. You see more success perhaps from, from the Swiss and the Canadians in games that are played uh, outside in the snow, for example. But focusing within those biases, it's still very clear that the investment has paid off. The argument that I would make, tying back to the economic article from Free Economics I shared at the very beginning, is that we shouldn't underestimate the impact on our economy either. If more women who are going to be entering the workplace because of the nature of shifts in our culture, but perhaps even very necessary in the workplace in order for us to sustain any sort of growth in GDP... To succeed, there need to be educated. To be educated, need to figure out how to afford it and pay for it. And perhaps being an aspiring U.S. women's national team soccer hopeful is a great way of getting there. If, somewhere between the early 1970s and the late 1980s, universities that might educate you to be that productive member of the workforce also have an obligation to provide you the same scholarship opportunities that male athletes are provided, and the biggest, perhaps, opening there, the largest number of scholarships in any one sport may be falling towards soccer, can explain both of these at the same time. The success of women athletes at the Olympics, the, the U.S. women's soccer team setting a new standard, I think, for excellence in the game and winning the most recent World Cup with the fact that our economy has continued to maintain itself even through some very difficult and, frankly, self-inflicted economic trials here in the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. But do we do that if we suddenly had some sort of theocratic notion that no women are allowed to work 
in the workplace and that there's no reason for women to go to college and get educated and there it's uh, unfeminine and unseemly for women to be playing sports. That article by Justin Wolfers pointed out, I think accurately, that the people who have the most trouble coming to terms with the idea of a gay couple wanting to be married also has trouble coming to terms with the idea that maybe two people who live in a companionship marriage would share both responsibilities inside the home and responsibilities in the workplace. And perhaps standing on principle all the way back in 1972 with a kind of a fair-minded notion of what equality means, I don't have any illusion that a a ton of, of people in the U.S. Congress, mostly men back then, mostly men now, as a matter of fact, were making a bold decision about the future of the U.S. economy in 30 years. I don't think they were trying to pave the way for U.S. amateur success in women's sporting events at the Olympics and elsewhere. I think they just made a uh, fair-minded, right decision on the question of equal pay, equal treatment, and equal opportunity. And the rest took care of itself. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpsons Syndicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We all make no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. missed the opportunity to talk about this uh, impact of Title IX on sports during the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. My next focus was the month of June, because our different drummer this week, Pat Summit, was born in the month of June, 1952, and died in the month of June a year ago. And I, of course, missed that timeline as well. I had things going on in my life in the month of June that simply needed to take priority. But that doesn't stop me from my desire to take advantage of, uh, if not within a year, within not much more than a year, to take a moment and recognize the incredible, frankly, achievements of Pat Summit, and to do so in the context of women's sport in particular, and her contribution to what might be right now the most impressive showing. There is a professional soccer league in America for women. But I think there's perhaps a more successful avenue to professional career for basketball-playing women than even soccer-playing women. We'll see how that develops over time. But there's no doubt in my mind that if you had to name just one coach who's responsible for women's basketball and the success of that sport, it's Pat Summit. You could make an argument that that needs to be wider. It needs to have two or three or four names in there, and that's fair enough. And I don't think I can cover in a different drummer segment 
Pat Summit without mentioning Gino Ariema. And my game plan for talking about women and the success of women in sport was to do so at what might have been an undefeated additional national championship for the impressive UConn women's basketball team this year in March Madness. That didn't actually happen because in the Final Four, in one of the most thrilling games I've seen this year in any sport, Mississippi State upset UConn and knocked them out of the tournament, kind of ending that undefeated title-winning dream season. But again, I'll go back to the same argument I've been making here lately about the success of multiple international uh, women's soccer teams stepping up their game and very successfully standing toe-to-toe with the U.S. women's team, in some ways putting a challenge to the U.S. women's team that they need to continue to evolve or slip back into the pack. Mississippi State standing up to UConn and winning that game is uh, just another indication of what happens when a standard of excellence is raised and everyone else rises to the occasion. I think across the board, not just in the SEC where Tennessee played and on the Eastern Seaboard where Connecticut plays, but even in the Big 12 where Baylor made a name for themselves a few years ago, you're seeing lots of women's basketball teams rise up and set a standard. And women's basketball had successful coaches, successful players, impressive teams before Pat Summit started to coach. It's not hard to look back at some of the teams that were contemporary to the beginning of her career from Louisiana Tech and Texas. Individual players like Cheryl Miller from USC and say, well, this sport didn't begin with Pat Summit. And I'm not even sure that at the very beginning of Pat Summit's career, most of us had any clue. I might have been a decade in to ignoring the University of Tennessee because they're not my team before I actually stopped and noticed and said, there's something going on there that is really, really significant. For a coach who is tough as nails and in some ways called to mind some of the more authoritarian coaching figures that I frankly rarely celebrate, seeming to represent some of the uh, better qualities of Bobby Knight without any of the negative qualities, being every bit a uh, teacher-professor type as John Wooden, and being very focused on the game first, uh, having a a low-drama, no-drama approach to things, while all at the same time being just absolutely tough as nails. Let me just rattle off some of the facts from Wikipedia. Not that I think that most of them need to be shared. If anyone's not aware of this particular coach who has more wins than anyone else in NCAA basketball history, then something's seriously wrong. That if our standard is still so gender divided that we put adjectives like women's in front of some sports. The joke that uh, I heard on some other podcasts, a joke that I frankly wholeheartedly agree with, as an American citizen anyway, is that from a U.S. perspective, maybe we should start calling the World Cup that the U.S. women won in Canada, the World Cup, and start dropping the men's adjective in front of the other World Cup, where the U.S. has frankly never been all that successful, at least uh, not in my lifetime. So I reject any dismissive claims about Pat Summit being a women's college basketball coach, as if that's somehow fundamentally different from college basketball in general. Here's the uh, Wikipedia entry. Patricia Sue, Pat Summit was an American women's basketball coach who, over the course of her career, accrued 1,098 wins, the most in NCAA basketball history. She served as the head coach of the University of Tennessee Lady Vols team from 1974 to 2012, incidentally, her entire coaching career with that same team. She retired at age 59 because of a diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's disease. Summit won eight NCAA championships and NCAA women's record when she retired. 
a number surpassed only by the 10 victories won by UCLA men's coach John Wooden, and the 11 titles won subsequently, some of those, by UConn women's basketball coach Gino Ariema. She was the first NCAA coach and one of four college coaches overall, with at least 1,000 wins. Summit also won two Olympic medals, a gold as a head coach in 1984 of the U.S. women's basketball team, and a silver as a player on the 1976 team, where she was co-captain. She was named the Naismith Basketball Coach of the Century in 2000. In 2009, the Sporting News placed her at number 11 on the list of the 50 greatest coaches of all time in all sports. She was the only woman on the list. In 38 years as a coach, she never managed a losing season. In 2012, Summit was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freeman by President Obama and received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the 2012 ESPY Awards. She wrote three books, all co-authored by Sally Jenkins, Reach for the Summit, part motivational, part biography, Raise the Roof, about the Lady Vols' 1997-98 undefeated and NCAA championship winning season, and Sum It Up, covering her life, including her experience being diagnosed and living with Alzheimer's disease. That is the introductory paragraph for Pat Summit. It seems obvious to me that there is a chance, a very good chance perhaps, that before Mike Krzyzewski is done coaching at Duke University, that he will take over that most wins by a college basketball coach. Uh, both he and Summit have passed Dean Smith and others who had a, a milestone along the way. It's also possible that at some point during my lifetime, someone else is going to pass that eight national titles mark and perhaps pass the John Wooden 10 national titles mark. And we've already seen uh, Gino Ariema with 11 national titles. So all of the milestones from the perspective of uh, victories and national championships are, like all records, subject to future amendment. But I'm not sure how long it might take before we see another coach who, first off, spends an entire career at one university, produces winning seasons along the way, with very few exceptions, 20-plus, and often even 30-win seasons along the way, and retire with dignity and class on her own terms, literally passing the mantle to the assistants that she brought in along the way. The list of people who were part of her program, whether her son or assistant coaches or former players who've moved on to be coaches, is also a very uh, staggering statement about the legacy that she's passed on. You wonder whether or not there could be a successful professional women's basketball league if it weren't for two things. First, the uh, inclusion of women in the same facilities and locations where the NBA already has basketball cathedrals established. More on that in a minute. But second, the coaching family tree, the players that have come through the system, who have gone on to deliver not just Olympic performances in women's basketball, but professional performances in the women's NBA. All of these, if you remove uh, Summit from the picture... And by and large, assume that you're going to remove some of the success that the University of Tennessee had in the process. Does any of this happen? Are any of these good things available? Is she that much a low central foundational peg in the Jenga game, so to speak? I don't want to be overdramatic and say the whole thing might come crashing down without her. There's two factors here that I think are significant and important. But Summit has a role to play in many ways in both. The sport had enough credibility that it was clear that there were enough players of of incredible, top-notch talent, well-coached, well-drilled, well-trained, 
who were capable of playing professionally and had nowhere to do the playing. I'd like to call out, critically, uh, sports commentators, both through ESPN and through other networks. Jim Rome comes to mind as an example. Uh, people who've used uh, pejorative terms like gravy train to refer negatively to the success of the WNBA hinging upon what happens at the NBA level. To me, this isn't a criticism. It's a roadmap. It's how you do it. In the United Kingdom right now, women's soccer is not, it's not paying its own bills. But it's possible because there are already uh, academy fields and stadiums and all the other pieces and parts in place to provide an if-you-build-it-they-will-come opportunity for spectators to come and watch women play the sport of their team. There is a Manchester City women's team to go with the Manchester City men's team, for example. Likewise, Arsenal, Chelsea, so many other teams that are part of uh, the Premier League in England. You've got a stadium, you've got facilities, why not use them? The WNBA got there first, in my opinion, and is not all the way there just yet. These things do take time, but the fact that women's sports are being played in uh, the same cities where there's already stadiums isn't a bad idea. It's, in fact, a good idea. And anybody who calls it to question could probably be accused of not understanding the business of sport. I don't know that we could accuse Pat Summit of having the greatest understanding of the business of sport. I think she kept it that way intentionally. None of the articles I've read give me much insight, and I haven't read the three books, to understand how many times she said no to offers to take on professional positions. I guarantee it happened. She was offered, in fact, to take over the men's basketball program at the University of Tennessee on more than one occasion, and in each case turned it down. Part of this is understanding what she felt like her calling was to do and where she was making a significant contribution, perhaps recognizing this before any others, including people at the University of Tennessee, recognized it. But by finding a spot, making a contribution, and frankly not really caring that much whether people liked it or not, Summit has made an impact to sport that dovetails nicely with the impact of Title IX. And I believe we're going to continue to see the results of that, both at the amateur sports level and increasingly at the professional sports level, for quite some time. I'm not sure that in the realm of women's sports, if we want to move the adjective back and have a conversation in just that narrow perspective, we're ever going to see anyone who's going to make quite the contribution, at least not from the coaching ranks, for the rest of our lives. I suspect I'm not alone among people who've had an experience of a loved one dealing with Alzheimer's disease. It is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, actually, to deal with that disease with dignity. I don't know anything about the last months or uh, so of Summit's life. I don't know how things played out or how they ended. But I do know that she probably continued to play an active role in the team as long as humanly possible. Um, not, in my opinion, from an outsider's view, being a disruptive influence and leaving the university with a team that's, well, frankly, better than the one that she inherited, to be honest with you, all those decades and decades ago. So I think it deserves an extra special credit for someone who, you know, continued to contribute long after 
she might have just said, hey, I've got a diagnosis. If you were given two, three years to live, how many of those years would you continue to give to your job if you thought that it was just a job? I think part of her success and part of the influence that she's had, not just on women's basketball or, or even more narrowly college women's basketball or Tennessee women's basketball, but the impact that she's had upon sport across any level you want to cut, both, again, nationally and internationally, establishing that women's basketball is a game to which international teams may aspire. We may very well see an elevation in the quality of play internationally in women's basketball, not just Australia, but other countries, because the bar has been set and it's not particularly impossible to reach. I don't suspect there's ever going to be an occasion where the International Olympic Committee gets together and decides that there's no place for women's basketball at the Olympics, meaning we may see the quality of sporting excellence in basketball, as it has with soccer, continue to rise. Part of that is due to quality of facilities and good economic use of facilities. Once you build a stadium, you might as well have more than one team play in it. Part of that is due to the individual head coaching excellence of people like Pat Summit and also uh, her rival, Gino Ariema. I will say that if a neutral fan who doesn't pay any attention to American college basketball wanted to watch some American women's college basketball. Well, recently, the game to watch is obviously the semifinal this year between Mississippi State and UConn. But actually, that Connecticut team is probably the best way to go for looking at games over the past 10 or 15 years. All of the matchups, whether it be regular season or postseason, between Tennessee and Connecticut, truly clashes of the titans. The kind of thing that, if it were men's professional basketball, you might see ESPN 30 for 30s about a rivalry that perhaps maybe not quite as epic, at least from a pay scale perspective, as the Lakers versus the Celtics. But in the women's game, every bit is epic. But in addition to equal access to facilities, in addition to individual greatness from individual players and coaches, the other factor may have just been that in 1972, for whatever reason, the United States Congress decided that equal access meant equal access, and somewhere over the course of the next 20 years, made good on that promise. What we've been experiencing ever since is the reality of what can happen if you treat people equally. If you treat people fairly, with dignity, and with respect, if you don't make decisions about what somebody's capabilities are based on nothing more than a stereotypical list of external characteristics like gender, like race, like religion, like ethnicity, like family background. Women are not the only ones who could benefit from this particular shift in our society. We still don't quite have right the way we handle race as a society. We clearly have backslid, if anything else, on the way we handle family background and religion and ethnicity and uh, immigration, for want of a better word. But a lot of the greatest things that have happened in this country in my lifetime have happened from people who either directly were immigrants or their families were immigrants, especially if you go back to the, uh, the level of grandparents coming to this country. We've seen what can happen in a gender divide when you treat people equally. I wonder what might happen if we apply that same standard as rigidly, as aggressively, as doggedly in other aspects of our society, whether that be race creed, or sexual orientation. 
If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I have a Twitter handle at IC underscore Greg. I have a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations listed as a cause. There also is one for the other podcast that appears on this feed, Walk the Earth. SoundCloud, uh, IC underscore Greg, is a way to find audio clips of the oldest shows. And by oldest, I've moved up into the hundreds now, and I'm going to continue moving forward sharing clips on SoundCloud to give people an audio hint of what those shows are all about. In the meantime, thanks for listening. of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.